In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlet Case. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Every year, a powwow is held on Kawas' First Nation. It's a place for the community to come together, to welcome back visitors, and those who are searching for home. So the 60 school adoptees, uh, descendants of residential school survivors, uh, I think I've helped maybe over 15 of them now find their way back. You might remember Dean Leroy from last season. He's an RCMP officer by day and DNA detective by night. I call it a genetic roadmap is kind of what I'm creating. So we've gone to identify all the elders from all the family lines, getting their, uh, their uh, DNA sample and creating that, that database. Dean helps people in his community find the families they were separated from. The community's annual powwow is a place for those families to meet. And that's where Rachel Lara comes in. No relation to Dean, but thanks to his detective work, Rachel has found her way here. You know, it, it, it was so long since I've been there. And it felt so good to be home. Rachel came to Cowessis to reconnect with her mom's side of the family, but also to seek out new connections to her father. I wasn't told anything about my my biological father and his side, but it, it was still in the back of my mind. It's like, okay, where, where's my other half? Rachel set out to find her biological father, but by the time DNA testing led her there, it was too late he had already passed on. That didn't stop her journey, though, and she found some surprising connections. I think it was like three days before Christmas of last year, I got the text telling me that Corey is 100% my half-brother. Just one text message from Dean LaRaw, and Rachel's family got a whole lot bigger. It's just one of the things that happens when people come home. Hello and welcome. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Rachel Leroy is one of many Indigenous people searching for her family. Generations of government laws and policies means generations of children searching for home. Policies like the 60 Scoop saw thousands of children fostered or adopted out to non-Indigenous families. Now people like Colleen Hill Cardinal hope to lead them back to their families, communities, and themselves by literally drawing a map. What we wanted was for the map to self-populate, and, and you visually see it. Um, but then it's turned into like a platform for survivors to tell their stories and for them to find biological family members. Also, remember Amy Bombay? 
Amy was a guest on Unreserved eight years ago, talking about how trauma is passed through our DNA. She's back to tell us what her research reveals about something else passed from generation to generation. Resilience. That strength can be transmitted across generations at the same time as these trauma events and effects are happening. Today, the path to reunification is a winding one, connecting to history, culture, and science. It's all a part of coming home. From Tuktoyaktuk to Edmonton, from Manitoba to Pennsylvania, from Saskatchewan to the United Kingdom. These are a few places Indigenous children were sent to as part of the 60s scoop. For decades in Canada, children were scooped from their homes and placed in non-Indigenous families. It's a familiar story to Colleen Heal Cardinal. Colleen and her two sisters were taken 2,000 kilometers away to Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Since reconnecting with her biological family, she now knows she is from Saddle Lake Cree Nation in Alberta. These days, Colleen is the co-founder of the 60 Scoop Network. They help connect families affected by the scoop. I spoke with her about how she uses her own experience to help survivors find their way home. I started by asking about the kind of home she grew up in. You know, I don't remember much about coming to the home, but I do, you know, I one day these people were my parents and I called them mom and dad. They were non-Indigenous folks. They were, I guess you would call middle class. So I grew up in this household not questioning anything because I didn't know any different. I just thought these people were my parents. <laughs> you know, you, just, you, never, you don't question things when you're a kid, but then as you get older... You start noticing differences, you know, their skin would turn bright red in the summer. My sisters and I would turn nice and dark. Um, Everybody was white. And what story did they share with you eventually or if at all about, about how you came to be in their family? Eventually we found out that we were adopted. You know, we got the story that our mom was a drunk or our parents didn't want us. And then it wasn't until I was a teenager that they told me that I was Indian. And, you know, for me, growing up Indian was a bad thing. All the dialogue and the narrative in my household towards First Nation people was bad. You know, they lived on reserves, on the on the edge of town. You know, back then, there was a lot of poverty. So you'd see these rundown houses, and my, my adoptive father would say, you know, watch out for the Indians. And I would see signs like, say, uh, watch for falling rocks. And I literally thought falling rocks was an Indian in the bush who was going to kill me, you know, with bows and arrows. So like my idea of what it meant to be Indian with quotation marks was bad. So I grew up already internalizing racism about myself and my, my sisters. And was there a moment where that changed for you? Gosh, that that took a long time to undo. You know, when you're brainwashed and um, because that's what it is, you're brainwashed into white culture um, to believe and to perform into something you're not. It's a lot of work to undo it, to acknowledge that you're part of a larger 
project of genocide is is it hurts you know to know that this was done deliberately to us so um it is a lot of work and it's still a lot of work to return to our identities and how did you take that journey what were the first steps that you took in returning Colleen to her indigeneity and discovering that this was a whole genocide project you know, you think that when I returned to my biological family, that that would have been a turning point for me. I, I actually repatriated to my family when I was 16 years old, um, but they had nothing for me. They were very much indoctrinated into Christianity. Um, it wasn't until I had sobered up when I was 29 and I went back to college in Sault Ste. Marie, in um, what they called Rawating, the gathering place, and I took the Native Addictions Community Worker Program, which incorporated culture into their, their curriculum, where I started learning about ceremony. It was the first time I smudged. It was the first time that I learned about tobacco. And I just watched everybody else. And I, I mimicked them, not knowing what we were doing. And I was so afraid to ask questions. But um, those were the painful acts of reclaiming identity. And it just grew from there. You know, I started taking Anishinaabe Moen, and then I went on to um, higher education. And I started learning about what happened. Nobody gave us a name for being adopted. And it's through that that I was like, where are all these other adoptees? I want to meet them. Like, what happened to them? Is their story like mine? Are they struggling too? So that was kind of like the spark for me of creating like the network and then of course like the mapping project. And it's just been an ongoing constant like learning and unlearning. Yeah. And how long have you, how long ago was that that you started the 60 Scoop Network? We started 2014 and um, we had our first gathering in Ottawa. We went to the local Algonquin elders and asked them if we could do ceremonies and do like create a network. And they supported it and they gave us the name Pajiwan, which means to come home. And when we talk about coming home, we're not talking about a physical place, but coming home to ourselves, of belonging and identities. Um, so we had our first gathering in 2014. We had 60 scoop survivors from all parts of Canada. Um, they actually paid for their own way to come to Ottawa because they wanted to be with other survivors so much. It was absolutely terrifying. Mm. <laughs> we just didn't know it was going to happen because we'd never done it before. And it was amazing. It was uh, three days of ceremony and sharing circles and um, different kind of uh, guest speakers. And it went so well that we decided to do it again. And we had the next one outdoors with Sweat Lodge, gentle introduction to Sweat Lodge, um, and what we've learned is that, you know, it's really hard for us to come back to our culture because we have a lot of questions that we're afraid to ask. We also have imposter syndrome. So we feel like we don't fit into spaces where we belong because of the the brainwashing. You know, sometimes our adoptive families don't understand why we, we would want to reconnect with our culture because everything they know about our culture they, is bad, right? Mm. So... That's the complicated relationships we have with biological and our adoptive families, and only adoptees would understand that. Mm. Can you take me back into that first gathering? What was that like to stand in a room full of 60 Scoop survivors coming home to themselves? 
It was great. I, I think it was a wonderful memory of accomplishment of like belonging and a larger community of people that we were connected to that were all over the place. So we could be there for each other. And a lot of us are still quite close and consider each other family. Many of those first people that came to that first gathering are still a part of the gatherings that happen right now. So they come out and they help all the time. And they're looking for that community with other survivors too. And it's kind of like the 60s group um, community across Canada and internationally and in and, 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 and the States, it's unique. Like once we meet, we stay in each other's lives. We're just there for each other because we've been looking for each other our whole lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, you the network launched an online mapping project that shows where children were taken from and where they ended up. Can you can you describe it for us? For sure. So that idea came to me um, 2014. I used to do volunteer work with a group called No One Is Illegal, and they had like their conference. They had a big sheet up on the wall, and on the on the sheet they had the world map, and they were giving the folks at this No One Is Illegal conference bright pieces of yarn and asking them to map their journey on the map. So it was very striking to look at. And I'm like, that's what we need. We need to visualize what that looks like of where we've been taken to in the world. Because at first, when you hear about the 60s, you think, oh, it happened in Canada. But then when you find out people were taken to the States and then to Africa and England and Germany, and what we wanted was for the map to self-populate. So when a user went on there, survivor went on there, they could say, I was born at Edmonton at the Charles Cancer Hospital and it was taken all the way over here to Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. And the map would auto automatically populate that. And, and you visually see it. Um, but then it's turned into like a platform for survivors to tell their stories and for them to find biological family members. You know, we've had about 112 people who've interacted with the map. So... The more exposure it gets, the more we'll have survivors use it. And the hope is to have international attention, to find survivors who may have been taken across borders. Hmm. What are some of the stories from that map? Have you had, you know, people reunite, meet? So recently we had a gathering in March where we brought uh, 10 survivors in from different areas of Canada and the States and actually from overseas too and record their stories on video and one of the women said she was from uh, Manitoba and taken to Pennsylvania. And her and her brother were separated when they were little. So he was just a baby. Like he would think it was like three or four years old when they were separated. She was older. I think she was like eight or nine. And she remembers that. That's a core memory for her when they were taken from each other and she was brought to the States and she doesn't know where he went. They were reunited as adults. They hadn't seen each other since they were children. And it was the most emotional thing I've ever seen. Like I've seen reunions, but I've never seen like um, a grown adult just really grieve that loss of her brother and remember that pain of having him taken away from her and being separated and to see them come together. Oh my God, everybody was crying in the room. And they got to know each other for the, over the next few days. And um, so in some ways, the map 
project brought them together and they were to share a little bit of what happened to them, each of one of their adoptions. Uh, you mentioned your own reunion story earlier, mm-hmm. um, but it didn't go very well. No. Can you tell us about how that experience of reconnecting with your biological family went? Yeah, sure. So I was 16 when I left Sault Ste. Marie and took a Greyhound bus out to Edmonton. And, you know, when you're an adoptee, when you find out you're adopted, you start fantasizing about what your parents might look like. And I had no reference, right? So me, thought I thought my mom would look like Cher, even though Cher is not indigenous. (laughs) (laughs) I thought my dad would look like Ponch from Chips. Erica Strata, right? <laughs> yeah. So these fabulously beautiful, wealthy people were always looking for me and they just couldn't find me, right? So when I met my actually met my biological mother, she was under the influence of Lysol. And I was shocked at her appearance. And so I was very disappointed. And um, and she passed away in 1999. I didn't know she went to residential school. Like nobody told me till 2015, I think, when I when I started doing research, nobody talked about it. And I met my biological father, um, and he was sober, but like I kept men at a distance, so my relationship with him wasn't good either. So none of my family had culture, and none of them went to ceremonies. Like it just was a lot of poverty, a lot of drinking, drugging, violence, and death is what I experienced when I went back to Edmonton. You know, I was very angry at her for a long time. I was very mad at her. Like, how come you didn't look for us? Like, you don't know what we went through as kids in that home. And, you know, I resented her for the longest time. But then when I found out she went to residential school, I went up to Blue Quills School. That's where she went to. And I went and visited her grave. And I was able to talk to her and forgive her and, and and make peace with her and say, listen, I understand now, like why and what happened. And it wasn't your fault. And I can't imagine what it would have been like for her to have three, three children taken away from her and never see them again. That would have drove me mad. I probably would have drank myself to death too. So it brought me a lot of healing and empathy to understand what happened to my parents. Mm, yeah. As you said, you, you had this big sort of fantasy going about who your parents might be and, you know, that they're looking for you. And that's a fantasy that lots of people have, you know, 60 Scoop adoptees have. Um, and you often hear, you know, these amazing reunion stories, tears, love, but that doesn't always happen. How do you move through something like that? How did you move through something like that? I think for a long time, I was very angry and and resentful that I didn't have my own family. Like I didn't have your typical dad and your typical mom and all these extended relatives. And my one sister, Gina, the oldest one, she was murdered in 1990. She was killed in Edmonton a year after we reunited with her parents. And then my other sister, Patty, she never got over childhood trauma but also the fact that Gina was murdered um, and she's still out in Edmonton. I I think she struggles with mental health and addictions but when I started healing when I moved to Ottawa in 2011 I really took care like I went to therapy and started 
you know, addressing childhood trauma and the work with the 60 Scoop Network and meeting other survivors that helps fill that void. Um, we are really there for each other. And, it, and it's building community so that we have folks to help us through hard times. The relationships I have with survivors are, you know, they're good, but we have attachment issues and abandonment issues. So it's something that we all struggle with and that we can relate to each other in that way. And be gentle with each other. Yeah, exactly. And check in. We talk to check in with each other. Like, I'm so grateful for the friendships and family that I've made through the 60 Scoop Network. And it's not, I didn't create that <laughs> for myself. I just wanted to find other survivors like myself. Hmm. Why do you think it's important to do that work? Why do you think it's important to bring together survivors to make mapping projects to to take this journey with them? Because nobody else is doing it. Because when we started doing the gatherings, there was nobody doing this work and we needed it for we need it for each other. We have to create our own spaces to heal. Even though there's a CC Scoop Foundation, like that's great that you know they're a funding a funding body, but it is the people who are doing the work are the ones that are making the difference in people's lives. It it means a lot to me. You know, I used to do this work. I mean, I still do it in a in a way that it makes me jump out of bed, and I can't wait to get going to do it because it doesn't feel like work. It's passion for me. It's like. Um, if we waited for somebody else to do this for us, we wouldn't have anything. So we have to do this until we get the message out there that this happened to us. Mm. What do you envision the future or want the future to look like for for yourself as a survivor and other 60 Scoop survivors? I think one of the biggest things that we want is acknowledgement. We haven't been acknowledged nationally or internationally, that this has happened to us. You know, once in a while, somebody will pick up interest on it, but it's not enough. You know, like the residential school survivors, they have lots of attention, and rightly so, but we want it to be acknowledged that this happened to us. We're still trying to heal from it. We need supports too. We want the world to know that Canada trafficked us and assimilated us, and why they assimilated us. We want acknowledgement. We want to be heard and listened to. And uh, we deserve that. We deserve that. Colleen, thank you so much for your time today and for this beautiful work you do. Thank you for having me. Colleen Heal Cardinal is the co-founder of the 60s Scoop Network. Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen. And we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM. U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice One. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today we're talking to Indigenous people who are finding their way home and those who are helping along the way. One of those people is Amy Bombay. 
She researches the impacts of residential school and how trauma gets passed down from generation to generation. Amy spoke about her work about eight years ago on Unreserved, but now she's discovering something new. Resilience can also be passed through family lines. Amy, welcome back. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be back. Well, first of all, remind us how trauma works to change a person's or a family's DNA. Epigenetics is is really what we're talking about there. And for many years, up until about 20, 30 years ago, we thought that we were born with our our DNA, and that is true in a way. Um, But what we now know is that our environment, our experiences can actually turn on or off our genes so that they're either expressed or not. Um, So that's completely really changed our understanding of human development. Mm. And what we know from research with animals is that in some cases, um, those epigenetic changes they can be passed on in the sperm or ova and, and the actual epigenetic changes can be passed on. And we, we don't know if that's the case similarly in humans because it's much harder to study. Um, but we do know that epigenetic changes have been observed in the next generation of Holocaust survivors, for example. We just don't know exactly if those epigenetics changes themselves were passed in the DNA or not, or if it's because of their own early life experiences. Mm, interesting. How did uh, uh, studying this uh, epigenetics and, and uh, passing down of trauma um, help you understand your own family's experience? That's really kind of, I think, how I got into the research. I was in my undergraduate degree and I saw Maria Yellow Horse Braveheart um, speak in Ottawa at the Wabano Centre for Aboriginal Health. And for me, learning about historical trauma, which she's the person who kind of coined that term in relation to the cumulative trauma across generations as a result of colonialism. Mm -hmm. And for me growing up mostly in Ottawa, I did not have that history in high schools. My family didn't really talk about it very much. And it was only a couple years earlier in my last year of high school that I learned about residential schools and that my grandparents went. And I I wrote a paper where I interviewed my grandmother. And that was a a huge shift in my understanding of why Indigenous, you know, health inequities, social inequities exist today. And I realized there wasn't a lot of research that had been done in relation to that at the time. So that's really what got me started is how helpful that understanding was for me in understanding not only my family, but, you know, just why Indigenous people face, yeah, the the, the health and social issues. Uh, because I think without that historical information and without knowing about the negative effects of trauma, um, people might have a tendency to blame Indigenous peoples for those outcomes without having an understanding of why they come about. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more uh, about your grandmother, where she went to residential school? My, I'm a, I'm a member of Rainy River First Nations, and my grandfather is from there. And he went uh, to St. Margaret's, where he met my grandmother, who was from Kujiching First Nation. And so they, they met at residential school, um, but did not have a healthy relationship. And, and once they left residential school, where, you know, they were traumatized, and 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 I say that just assuming my grandmother never spoke about 
details too much, at least to me. And that's actually in our research, what we find is is common as well, is um, that common collective and individual response to trauma where you don't want to talk about it. Um, yeah. In the research with the Holocaust, they refer to it as the conspiracy of silence. And we see kind of a lot of the same collective and, and individual silence around residential schools. Um, but I think that's changed a lot since the settlement agreement, the TRC. Um, but it's still, yeah, I, I still think people have a lot of healing to do. Mm, absolutely. And in terms of that healing, um, last we spoke, of course, your work focused a lot on trauma and how and how it, uh, it gets passed down. But you've since started looking at uh, sort of the flip side of that. How has your research evolved over the last decade? Yeah, um, we're, we're still trying to understand the different pathways involved because it's really complex and there's a lot of different factors involved. But like you said, we've also really tried to focus more on what are the factors that promote um, resilience in residential school survivors. Um, for example, again, using the First Nations Regional Health Survey data, which is uh, looking at First Nations living in uh, on reserve, we found, for example, that survivors and their children and grandchildren are actually more likely than those not affected by residential schools to report engaging in traditional cultural uh, activities and events, to feel stronger feelings of community belonging. And, you know, from qualitative research that's shown us how those affected by residential schools find that important part of their healing journey, I think that's just really exciting and speaks to the resilience of those affected and, you know, as part of their healing, regaining a lot of those things that were taken from them. And so not only do we find in our research that they're more likely to to have some of these protective factors is that uh, for everybody, they are protective and we find that they, they're associated with positive health outcomes um, and that they can kind of buffer against different types of stress. Mm. And in terms of of resilience, um, how do you how have you found that it is passed down from generation to generation? We're starting to look at that in our quantitative research, but based on our qualitative research, when we are talking to adult children of survivors who report that their parents kind of held on to that source of cultural pride and identity, you know, for for whatever reason. Um, and was able to pass that on to their children, uh, pr- pass that pride, those traditions, instead of, you know, those feelings of shame that they would have gotten from the residential school system and from all of those messages. So, you know, there were a lot of stories of uh, residential school students who were speaking their language in private um, mm. and doing that, you know, when no one was around, even though they might get in trouble. So stories like that, I think, are really really special and speak to the strength of Indigenous people and their cultures and how important that is in, in well-being and and now in healing, moving forward and healing from uh, residential schools and, and other things like the child welfare system. Right. What can you tell us about the concept of survivance? This is a new word for me. I've not heard of this before. Yeah, it's kind of a new word for me too. Um, I, I've started seeing it in the the scientific literature around Indigenous health. And I already mentioned the term historical trauma. And so on the flip side, survivance is talking about resilience, but at the, at the collective level, and also recognizing that that strength can be transmitted across generations at the same time as these trauma events are, and effects are happening. 
And just because people are affected by trauma doesn't mean that they're going to have these negative outcomes. And it, it emphasizes that there are these protective factors and, and that those have also been transmitted across generations as well. Mm-hmm. And protective factors being, for example? Again, families in residential schools um, were not provided with proper parenting role models. Um, but those that have been able to, um, over generations, heal and now provide the next generation with early environments, you know, with as, you know, as little adversity as possible, you know, positive parenting, social support, those things are all protective and linked with positive outcomes. But the other thing I think specific to uh, I mean, for, I think Indigenous peoples in general, but especially those affected by residential schools and the child welfare system where um, their cultures were specifically attacked, those culture kind of related factors um, are, are also really, really important. Um, today's show is focusing on um, people who are doing, going on reunification journeys, reconnecting with their their culture, their their family, you know, finding family that they've been separated and disconnected from. Um, do you have uh, any thoughts as to what some of the possible m- mental health impacts of being on, on a, a reconnection journey would be? Um, we're just starting to get involved in research looking at things like that uh, with uh, a 60 scoop survivor group who who is interested in doing some of the same types of research we've we've done in relation to the residential school system. Uh, But we haven't got there yet. Mm. But there would be similar um, impacts for somebody who, you know, was disconnected from their families, like residential school, like the child welfare uh, system. Absolutely. And what we know from some of our research and work uh, of others is that for residential school survivors, they're not necessarily reuniting with their families, but they're reuniting with their cultures, uh, mm. you know, trying to to learn the languages that they were not taught in, in residential schools. Um, so there's a, you know, a reunification with culture in that sense that we've heard a lot of residential school survivors seek out and is a very important part of the healing process. You know, it's not exactly the same, but a lot, you know, it was a government policy that resulted in Indigenous children facing stress and trauma, including having their cultures ripped away from them and being exposed to, you know, racism. So I I would guess it would be a lot of the same effects and a lot of the same things that survivors find healing and helpful and supportive in their journeys um, towards wellness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You had mentioned earlier that you're still in like sort of early days of studying the uh, effects of, you know, 60 Scoop experience. But tell me about more about the 60 Scoop research that you've been asked to do. Yeah, we were approached by a 60 Scoop group, uh, the 60 Scoop Legacy of Canada. They came to us because they really found that our research related to residential schools was helpful and they 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 were interested in us working with them to do the same type of uh, research focused on the, the 60 scoop and ongoing issues within the child welfare system. And again, we're still looking at issues related to residential schools and, and other things because it's all it's all linked together. It's all connected, right? Yeah. So what, what will that research look like? So we worked with them to develop a, a pilot study, and we're going to just look at some of the uh, initial results and decide if we want to scale the, the study up. One of the studies we're doing is just through a survey 
where people can fill it out online. Um, but then we're also following up with people after that through in-person sharing circles, gatherings. Um, they're planning to have a national gathering next April. And so we're um, going to invite all of the participants from our study to come and discuss their experiences in the study and any other issues that come up for people that maybe we're not capturing in the survey so far. Mm, and what what kinds of things are you looking for in in the in the study? We ask about early life experiences, um, both within foster care or with their adopted parents and families, or or before. And so uh, we also ask when were they taken from their parents, and we plan to do you know some comparisons between those adopted during the '60s scoop versus later. Um, we want to look at the the mental health outcomes and physical health outcomes in relation to being either adopted or put in foster care or in group homes and looking at differences between those experiences um, and also looking at the inter- intergenerational effects in in those whose parents have been affected by the child welfare system uh, and again we want to look at what are the intervening factors and protective factors that can can put an end to those intergenerational cycles yeah Certainly. And what, what do you, what will this research um, be used for? What, what are the outcomes that you're aiming to, toward? I mean, I think one of the things is, is education. We, we do a lot of education to Indigenous and non-Indigenous audiences. For Indigenous people, as I mentioned, we hope that it can um, really help understand why, you know, the, the inequities exist. And I guess that's for, for non-Indigenous Canadians too. But for Indigenous peoples, it's more about healing and understanding um, and promoting, you know, f- forgiveness um, is something that a lot of participants have talked about when they're going through um, their healing and, and people have spoken about how learning about their parents' and families' experiences in residential schools or the child welfare system has allowed them to forgive whether it's themselves, their parents, and then for non-Indigenous people, we hope learning about this can put an end to, to those blaming attitudes I mentioned and uh, promote allied action in supporting Indigenous people. Yeah. Um, what do you think is important for people to to know about this research when they're about to reconnect and, and go back to their communities and cultures and, and families for the first time? I think it's important to put everything in context. I think that's why it's helpful to understand historical trauma. Um, so we're we're not left blaming ourselves in any way or blaming, you know, our parents who might have been in, in situations that where they just were not able to because they were victims. And and so I think help that I think just putting it in that framework of, of historical trauma you know, while also considering survivance and our strengths and resilience at the same time, um, I think can provide just a good understanding of going into that, whatever happens, if, you know, you have a good outcome or not, I think understanding you're not alone and, and, and the, the people to blame are colonialism and our government. And so I, I hope that that can be healing and helpful for people, just not knowing how it's going to go and, and keeping a positive mindset about it. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Amy. Thank you for having me. Amy Bombay is Anishinaabe from Rainy River First Nation in Ontario. She is an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Dalhousie University. 
This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. We started our show at Cowess's First Nation. They're making room for adoptees who are finding their way home. Their annual powwow has been a welcoming space for reunification for the past few years now. And thanks in part to the DNA detective work of community hero Dean LaRaw, they may soon need bigger powwow grounds. He helped Rachel LaRaw connect with her newfound family. Well, sort of. Turns out she already met her two new brothers two decades ago. I met Waylon and Corey through mutual friends, mm-hmm. and I didn't know Dean was doing the DNA testing and stuff until the past few years. And then so then you sent your DNA sample off, came back, that you're related to these these two men who already know. What what? Take me to that moment when you got that text and you open it and you, and you see you're related 100% to this person. What's going on in your mind? What are you feeling? Happiness. Overwhelming happiness. I was, my whole body was vibrating mm-hmm. and I was like, thank you, God. <laughs> and why were you, why were you thanking God at that moment? Because I felt whole. Mm. You know, knowing who my biological father was and that I have brothers who I already knew since my early 20s. It, it was a great gift. Mm. What, what did you learn about your biological father? I didn't know, learn much about him. Like, I know his name, and I've seen pictures of him th- from my brother, Waylon. Um, but I don't know much about him yet. Mm-hmm. I've been concentrating on my relationship with my brothers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what about the connections that you have to your father's community of Pasquia? What did you learn about that? <laughs> I think I'm related to the whole reserve. <laughs> <laughs> no word of a lie. I have four of my aunts that married onto Pasco Reserve. And then if my biological father and his siblings were from Pasco Reserve. You have a lot of family. Oh, definitely. And how does it feel to make to make these connections, to know you have roots that go all the way back generations, that you're related to, you know, most of the Pasqua Reserve, that, you know, that you have this history there, that you've been reconnected to? Oh, it's amazing. My deceased aunt's husband, my Uncle Dean, he knew my father, and he told me Ronald Gordon was a really good guy, and he had a lot of respect for him. And that was your father's name? Ronald, yes. Yeah. You also, as you had said, you you learned you have siblings on your father's side, which are your brothers, and you have a relationship with them already. How did the relationship change once you found out you were actually brother and sisters? It became stronger. Mm -hmm. How so? Um, Well, I mean, we travel back and forth to see each other now, and it's just... Every time we see each other, we hug. Mm. It's just an amazing feeling. Yeah. Take me back to the first reunion, like the, you know, the reunion. I put that in quotes. But once, once you knew your relationship to each other, how were you feeling as you, you know, prepared to meet them as a sister? I was nervous. Yeah. 
but happy. Uh, Waylon and my sister-in-law, Lori, they came the first visit. And, yeah, he had tears in his eyes as we were talking and reminiscing and so forth. What happened when you first saw each other? Hugs. Yeah. <laughs> Hugs, smiles, and laughter. Yeah. Mm. Do you remember what the first thing they, they said to you as, as, your, as, uh, as their sister? We called each other. And, uh, yeah, they, they were like, I can't believe we have another sister. Because mm. we also have two other sisters from my father. And have you been in touch with them as well? I haven't met them yet, no. Looking forward to it, though, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. As well as connecting, you know, with your brothers on your paternal side and, and, and looking forward to connecting with your sisters there, you've also made even more connections. Your father's from Pasquia, which isn't very far from uh, your community and your mother's community of Cowessis First Nation. And you recently returned to Cowessis for the first time in many years. Why did you return there? You know, it, it it was so long since I've been there, and it felt so good to be home. <laughs> yeah. Imagine, you know, someone who, who doesn't know their family history, their family connections, uh, is listening to our conversation right now. What advice would you share with them about starting their own reconnection journey? I would say do it. It's worth it. It's worth it. Like, for me, I feel whole knowing my other half of where I come from. Mm -hmm. Like, it's definitely worth it. And so you definitely do it again? Oh, yes. Would you do it differently? No. (laughs) Well, I would have done it sooner, but no, this experience is amazing. It's an amazing journey. Yeah. And thanks to Dean... Like, he made it happen. He promised me he, would, he wouldn't stop until he found my biological father and family, and he's, he kept his word. He is a pretty much a superhero, I think. That he is. Mm-hmm. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today and your time. Well, thank you for having me. All the best to you and your, and your family. You also. Rachel LaRaw is a member of Cowess's First Nation in Saskatchewan. That's all our time on Radio Indigenous. This episode was produced by Laura Bone Stubing, Kim Kasher, Rhiannon Johnson, Zoe Tennant, and Aisha Smith Belgava. Find us on our website, cbc.ca slash unreserved, or download our podcast on the CBC Listen app. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. Ganaskanabitanawa, I go say. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.